Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. Uh, those of you that are with me in Auditorium 2, howdy. Across the way in Auditorium 1, hello. And those of you that are joining us online, a special welcome to you. If this is your first time here, I'm very excited about the fact that you're here today. As I said to our first-time guests last week, you've come at a defining moment for this church. And so I need to let you know that for the next couple of Sundays, uh, they're going to be a little bit different than what we normally uh, do here on Sundays. If you attend on a regular basis, most often you'll find us studying our way through whole books of the Bible or long sections of Scripture. But for the next four Sundays, we're talking about what it means for us here at Fellowship Greenville to join God in the work that he's doing here. And by God's grace, over the last two years, we have um, grown at a rapid pace. And we've talked about how there are close to a 1,000 new people here this year uh, than last year at this time. I mentioned how in the last two years, we've grown by about 33%, and how that, uh, like in our last new members class, there were 180 people going through that class. And so God keeps growing us week by week, and that means that there is a great opportunity that's been set before us, an opportunity to reach even more people right here in our own backyard. That great opportunity is that, uh, that we would multiply our ministry here six miles down the road, uh, down Highway 14 to the Adams Mill YMCA. Now, it's interesting, in the six-mile radius surrounding this campus, there's been a 59% population increase over the last 10 years, and it's projected to grow another 10% in the next five years. So God has positioned us in one of the fastest-growing areas of the state, and that provides a huge opportunity for us. Now, get this. According to Kingdom Analytics, the six-mile radius surrounding this campus, there are over 76,000 people who are unchurched or who have no faith involvement whatsoever. And in the six-mile radius around Adams Mill, it's estimated there are 77,000 people who are unchurched. And so when we multiply this ministry to Adams Mill, that means we have a 12-mile footprint in the community. And if you add those two numbers together, that means at the bare minimum, there are 155,000 people who are lost and need to be found. And what we're talking about now is in this five-week capital campaign is how we can partner with God to make the Adams Mill opportunity uh, a reality. Now, to create space here for more people and to multiply ministry to Adams Mill, we're looking to raise $15.7 million to cover the cost of the property and its renovation at $15.7 million, which we're praying that would be paid off through donations and three-year pledges, of which, and uh, last week, uh, some of you, if you were in the auditorium, well, I guess everybody, when the, when the uh, sound went off, you missed this, but we've already received $3.4 million in advance commitments, and that is very exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. So that leaves 
uh, to pay off in pledges. And we put together this little brochure that explains uh, all of this, uh, where we've been, where we are, where we believe God is leading us to be and, and how to get there. And it goes into great detail about this uh, three-year pledge idea. There's also a pledge card in the back that we encourage you to pick up. Everything is in the back to be picked up on your way out if you haven't already got one. And all the information is available online as well at our website and on our app. And in fact, you can scan the QR code there on the back of your chairs and it'll take you right to it. The number one thing that we're asking you to pray about is this, that you would ask God how he wants you and your family to be involved in the work that he's set before us. We're asking you to ask God what he'd have you give over the next three years to multiply our community to reach more of our community. And we're asking you to pray this way and then as God leads, we're asking you uh, to make your pledge on or before November the 19th, which we're calling Commitment Sunday, and then we'll announce the amount on Celebration Sunday, November 26. So that's what we've got coming up. And uh, that's what we're asking you to pray about. And we're praying for 100% participation. That means all of us would participate. That means we not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. And again, all of this is explained in the back of this brochure. Now, to get from where we are to where we believe God is inviting us to be, that means that we got to think biblically about our money and our stuff and to think biblically about what radical generosity looks like. And by the way, I'm very much aware that uh, one of the main things that people outside the church criticize most about the church is that the church is always talking about money. And I get that and I know that, and that may be true in some places, but it isn't true here. Really, we, we only talk about money and stuff when it comes up in one of the books that we're studying through or when God puts an opportunity before us to reach more people for Christ in a capital campaign like we're in right now. Um, enough said about that. But anyway, one of the things that we all have in common is that we all have lots of stuff, especially compared to the rest of the world. And um, I don't know if you thought about it, but stuff is kind of strange because we spend a lot of time taking care of our stuff. We dust our stuff, clean our stuff, paint our stuff, save our stuff, pack our stuff, store our stuff, and we move our stuff. And many of us spend a lot of money insuring our stuff so if something happens to our stuff, we can replace our stuff. And the strange thing about stuff is that after we spend a whole lifetime of polishing it and painting it and protecting it and packing it and moving it around, then we die and we leave our stuff for somebody else and the whole cycle starts all over again. Because after you die, your kids or your relatives come and they go through all your stuff and they throw away your bad stuff and the stuff that they don't want and they divide up the good stuff or they sell off some of the good stuff in order to enrich their inheritance. And then they take it home, the stuff they keep, they take home and they polish it and paint it and preserve it and protect it and pack it and move it and insure it. And then they die and somebody else comes and goes through their stuff and uh, the whole cycle starts all over again. It, it's, it seems like stuff is eternal, doesn't it? Now, we all know that's true. We all know we can't take our stuff with us. Uh, we know we'll leave it behind and it will be parceled out to other people. We know that's true. 
But in this life, when it comes to giving some of our stuff away or our money away, man, that's just plain hard, isn't it? Now, why is that? Well, it could be greed, uh, being miserly. It could be greed. But for most of us, I think it's more of an issue of fear, mainly the fear that if we give our money away, And then something happens, something bad happens, well, then what? Like, what if the economy collapses? What if the stock market crashes? What if I lose my job? What if all these wars going on in the world today lead to another world war? What if some cataclysmic event sends us back into the Civil War days? What if uh, I have unexpected bills? What if I can't pay my bills? And all those what ifs, are very real possibilities, right? And what happens when what ifs dominate your thinking is that it creates a fear inside of you, a voice that says, this is my money and this is my stuff and it's up to me to ensure my future security. It's up to me. I'm totally responsible to manage my money, my stuff, and to make sure I'll be financially secure. Now, of course, everybody can throw a few dollars in the offer plate now and then. Everybody can give away some discretionary money if they have it. Well, I I say that, but the fact is, people who study church growth and statistics tell us that 35% of the people who attend church regularly never give anything to the church. And they also tell us that 20% give 80% of what's given. 20 give 80%. Now, that's pretty much true here as well. 35 to 40%. Give nothing, 20 to 80%, uh, 20 give 80%, and the average percent, this is across the board in the country, of giving uh, to churches is 2.3%, which is less than what was given by Christians during the Great Depression. Now, numbers like that can be used by preachers to create a lot of guilt, which isn't my point. My point is, what would happen if believers increased their giving to a minimum of, say, Uh, say 10%. If the percent giving increased from 2.3% to 10%, there would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. And the global impact of that would be phenomenal. Now here, according to Relevant Magazine, here are some of the things that churches could do with that kind of money. 25 billion could relieve global hunger starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. 12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. 15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, especially in places in the world where one billion people live on less than a dollar a day. One billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. And 100 to 110 billion would still be left over for additional church ministry expansion to keep all of the above going. That's pretty incredible if you ask me. So why why don't we give? Well, greed, yeah, maybe fear, what ifs, thinking we uh, own it all, believing that everything is mine. You see, Jesus kind of puts his finger exactly on on the problem. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says giving is a heart issue, not a money issue. And to deal with the heart, we have to change the way we think about our money and our stuff from an ownership mat, uh, mentality to a stewardship mindset. 
So take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Chronicles 29. Paper or digital, find your way to 1 Chronicles 29. In 1 Chronicles 29, it's a story in the Old Testament about a king and his followers who somehow, at least at this point in time, were able to see their money and their stuff the way God sees it. Uh, And they came to see themselves as stewards rather than owners. And they did something that's so incredible that we're sitting here talking about it 3,000 years later. Now, let me give you the backstory from 1 Chronicles 28. David is king of Israel, and he's coming coming to the end of his life. And one day he's sitting in his palace. He lives in this incredible, beautiful palace made of stone and marble and gold and fine wood paneling. And he realizes that all of these years he's lived in luxury, but God is, is, uh, God's dwelling place was a box called a what? The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and what was in the box? Your flunking Bible quiz here. <laughs> 10 Commandments. And the Ark of the Covenant was housed outside the city in a what? Tent, right? And they call the tent a what? Tabernacle, good. So here's David living in all this luxury and one day it occurs to him that God is living outside the city in a box in a tent. Well, sort of, you, you know what I mean. They, they, they knew that God didn't actually live in a box, but the Ark was sacred because it represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. And that's why they carried it into battle with them. And you learned that from watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's why you couldn't touch it or look at it or you would die and your face would melt off like in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so the Ark was holy and it was sacred because it represented God's presence among his people. And one day it hits David. I live in luxury and all the gods of the pagan nations have these magnificent temples, but the one true God who reigns over all, he lives in a van down by the river. I mean, in a box outside the city in a tent. So David decides, some of you remember Chris Farley, don't you? And so David decides he's gonna honor God by building him the most incredible temple because he's the most incredible God. But God sends David a message and the message is, David, I appreciate your heart and how you want to honor me by building a temple for me, but I can't let you do it. You can't build my temple because your whole life has been full of of war and bloodshed, and so you can't build my temple, but your son Solomon will build the temple. And David gets that. He, He accepts it, takes it in stride, and so he decides, if I can't build the temple, I'll do a capital campaign and raise all the money so that when Solomon decides it's time to build the temple, he'll have all the gold and all the stone and all the wood and all the precious jewels and all the money and all the stuff he needs to build the temple. And so David raises lots and lots of money to build a building that he knows he'll never see in his lifetime. And he personally gives all he can to God's fu- with God's future in mind. All right, First Chronicles 29, 1. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. Now look at this. So I have provided for the house of my God. That's not the best translation. The NASB, New American Standard, is better. David says, with all my ability, 
I have provided for the house of my God. And that little phrase, with all my ability, reveals David's heart. David had wealth as a king and he had personal wealth and he gave out of both, both sources. And basically what he's saying is, I looked for all the ways I could to give as much as I could. That's what he's saying. Now notice, there's nothing here about a percentage. There's nothing here about have to or obligation or duty. There's nothing about giving out of guilt or coercion or manipulation. He doesn't grumble about it. David says, I'm gonna do all I can to give all I can. He goes on in verse two. With all my ability, I provided for the house of my God, the gold for, for the things of gold and the silver for the things of silver and the bronze and the iron and the wood and onyx and inlaid stone, all kinds of precious stone and alabaster or marble in abundance. Verse three, moreover, here again, reading with the NASB again, it is my delight in the house of my God from the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give it to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for this holy temple. Now, just so that nobody misses his point here, he says it twice. Not only am I giving out of my wealth as the king, I'm dipping into my personal wealth because he's saying I wanna be able to give to the maximum of my ability. And the gold and the silver mentioned in verse four that David personally gave to the work adds up to the modern day equivalent of about $17 billion. I mean, that, that, they, it's, that's incredible. I mean, David went giving crazy in order to get in on what God wanted to do. And it was his delight uh, for him to be able to give generously and sacrificially. Now look what happens next. The spirit of radical generosity becomes contagious. Into verse five, he asks, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself to the Lord? David says, here's what I'm gonna give. And so then he turns around and says, so who's with me? Who's with me? And get this, for David, this isn't as much about giving to a building project as it is giving to the Lord giving to what God wants done, verse six. Then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings, that is they gave willingly and freely and joyfully, as did also the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and hundreds and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18 thousand talents of bronze and a hundred thousand talents of iron. And it goes on about what the leaders gave. Verse nine, and the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart, they had offered freely to the Lord. And David the king rejoiced greatly. And what you have here, and sadly you don't see this much today, but you have the people uh, uh, going into this giving frenzy. Now, by the way, these people already tithed. The law required that they give 10% of all they had twice a year, and every third year they gave another 10%. So these people living under the law were already giving 23% of their annual income to God. And over and above that, they gave of these uh, free will offerings and sacrifices. 
And you know why God required him to do that? Because he wanted them to have generous hearts. The law of the tithes and offerings were like training wheels to create generous hearts in God's people. And, 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 and you say, well, how do you know that? Because of what happened right here. Because over and above all their regular tithes and offerings, as God led them, they gave, they gave generously to special projects like this one. Over and above all their regular tithes and offerings. And, and now they consecrate. They set aside more of their stuff to this special building project. And because they're looking for ways to maximize their giving. And the Bible says that they gave and they were excited and there was joy and gladness and celebration and wholehearted giving because they saw their giving as a way of making much of God in partnering with God in what he wanted done. You see, in this building project, God was far more concerned about building a people who would worship him with joyful, generous hearts than simply building a place to worship. And that's what's happening here. Look at verse nine again. The people rejoiced. There was joy in giving, willingly, freely. Here it is, wholeheartedly, because they understood first and foremost that they were giving to God, not just some building. Now the question is, how did they come to think that way? Well, they came to think that way because they came to understand the difference between ownership and stewardship. They understood the difference between ownership, which says all I have is mine, versus stewardship, which says all I have belongs to God and comes from God. Ownership versus stewardship. Now let me show you that in the text. David's prayer here uh, contains the key to understanding why these people gave willingly, joyfully, generously, and sacrificially. Look at verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above all. So who owns everything? God does. David says three times, yours is the greatness and the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. Everything in the heavens and the earth are yours, and yours is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over over all. See, it's David's high view of God that dominates his thinking and his desire to build his incredible God, uh, this incredible worship center. And so first point here, what David is saying is everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God because God owns it all. He goes on to say in verse 12, both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all, you rule over all. So point number two is that everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. You say, well, but I worked hard for what I have. I saw this opportunity, I sacrificed for it. I took some risk, it paid off. I scrimped and I saved and I invested. I worked hard, saved hard for all I have. That's right, but who brought the opportunities your way? Who gave you your brain and your eyes to see the opportunity? Who gave you your business savvy, your ability to plan and save and invest and the discipline to do that? Where did it all come from? 
You see, we can't take credit for any of that because it all came from God. Your health and your mind and your ability to learn and your keen insight, it all comes from God. Now, there's a third point here. Look back at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. Here's the third point. And in your hand are power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. It lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. You see what he's saying is, God, I get it. You, you distribute wealth and talents and opportunity and IQ and health as you see fit. In other words, God decides who gets what. God decides who gets what. Meaning, number three, that everything is distributed by God. Point is, everybody is equal in God's eyes, but not everybody gets the same things in the same amount. Everybody doesn't have the same IQ. Everybody doesn't have the same athletic ability. Everybody doesn't have the same earning potential. Everybody doesn't have the same quantity of health or wealth. Why not? Because as David says, God decides who gets what. God distributes, God disperses as he sees fit. He doesn't give the same abilities and opportunities to everyone. I will never dunk a basketball, never. I mean, there are people who can dunk, I can't dunk. I'm a non-dunker. They're dunkers. We're not equal in athletic ability, right? I'm smarter than some people, but not as smart as some other people. You're smarter than some people, but not as smart as some other people. The point is, God distributes as he decides. And that's why I can't look at you and compare myself to you and be envious. And that's why you can't look at me and be envious, because... Everything belongs to God, everything comes from God, and everything is distributed by God. Now think about that. When those three truths become the core of how we think about our money and our stuff, we will move from seeing ourselves as owners to seeing ourselves as stewards. Say this with me. Everything belongs to God, everything everything is... One more time, everything, everything, everything. Yeah, that's the foundation of biblical stewardship. You are a steward of God's stuff. Now, here's my working definition of stewardship. A steward is someone who manages somebody else's stuff. A steward is somebody who manages somebody else's stuff. So God says to each one of us, here's some of my stuff. Here's some brain power. Here's some talents and gifts and abilities. Here's some money. Here's some opportunities. Now take that stuff, my stuff. It's my provision for you, but not just for you. So use some of it. Invest some of my stuff and maximize it for my work in the world. But that's not all. The definition of stewardship goes one step further. A steward is someone who manages somebody else's stuff with the goals of the owner in mind. With the goals of the owner in mind. In other words, a good steward says, God, thank you for entrusting your stuff to me. What would you like me to do with your stuff? I mean, imagine what it would be like to sit down with a financial manager or a planner, and many of you have already done this, and you sit down with a financial planner and you turn over all your assets and investments for this guy to manage and invest for you. And one of the very first questions a good financial planner will ask you is, what are your goals? 
what would you like to see happen with your money? Which I always think is kind of a strange question. It's like, I wanna see it become as much as it possibly can be. Well, how much do you wanna retire on? As much as I possibly can. You know, I don't, but that's, that's just the way it is. But uh, so he's, so the financial planner's like, well, if I'm gonna manage your money, I need to know what your goals are so I can make sure that I handle your finances in the, in the right way, in the way that you intend. That's what you want, right? I mean, I mean, how would you feel if you sat down with a financial planner who said, wow, <laughs> you're giving me a lot of money to work with here. Thank you so much. My wife and I have been planning to add on to our house and now we're gonna be able to do it. <laughs> You'd be like, whoa, hold on, fellow. This isn't your money to do whatever you want with. This is my money. You're supposed to manage it for me. That's biblical stewardship. Basically, being a steward is being a financial manager of God's money. It's saying, God, I see that all I have is yours. I see that all I have has come from you. And I, you've given me talents and abilities and money and opportunity. It's all come from you. What would you like me to do with your stuff? That's biblical stewardship. Now, let me give you four quick, short statements to flesh out how to think biblically about stewardship. First of all, stewardship is not simply about money. It's about the great God who, your great God, who has graced you with all you have. It's not just about money. It's, it's more about your great God and gracious God who's graced you with money and stuff and talents and abilities. And that thought permeates this entire chapter. What the people gave came out of their love and affection and appreciation and adoration of God. Now, the second thing is stewardship is not some subcategory of the Christian life. Number two, stewardship is the Christian life. Stewardship and discipleship are two sides of the same coin. Discipleship is I live wholeheartedly to God because of what Jesus has done for me. Stewardship is I give wholeheartedly to God because of what God's given to me. And you cannot separate these two. They're two sides of the same coin. Number three, stewardship is your identity. It is not an activity. Stewardship is more about who you are than what you do. And when you understand that being God's steward is your identity, then as a response to grace, you'll give outside your comfort zone if God leads you to do that. Hear me, stewardship is not just some religious cliche that we use to make fundraising sound spiritual. No, it's central to who you are in Christ. So whenever God is at work among his people, and whenever God invites his people to join in his work, the stewardship question is, will you generously and sacrificially invest some of your stuff some of the stuff that God has given you to accomplish the work he's set before us. Will you generously and sacrificially invest some of the stuff God has given you to accomplish the work that he's set before us? That's exactly what this passage is about. That's the question that David asked the people of Israel when he says, who's with me? And a whole bunch of leaders and a whole bunch of people joined David, gave willingly and joyfully and generously and sacrificially over and above what they were required to give under the law. And they lived their lives and they died and many of them never saw that temple. But think, they left behind a legacy. They left behind a worship center 
that benefited their children and children's children and beyond. And this is so cool because because of their love and affection and their desire to make much of God, again, this story of radical generosity, we're still talking about it 3,000 years later because God decided to put it in his book. Now, the fourth point under stewardship comes from verses 14 through 17. And what you're gonna see here is that David tells us the same thing that he's already said, but he links it to something very important. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to give uh, so generously and willingly? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given back to you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. Oh, Lord, our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for this building, for your house, is for your holy name. It comes from your hand and it is all yours. And I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. Now, that's interesting, the testing of the heart. Let's keep reading. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I've seen your people who present, who are present here, offering freely and joy, joyously to you. O Lord, the God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. So David Praise again. God, everything belongs to you. Everything comes from you. Everything is distributed by you. And we're simply giving back to you what you've so generously given to us. And here's the bottom line. This is number four. Stewardship is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Look at verse 17. I know, God, that you test the heart. Verse 18. Forever keep your purposes and your thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. And to my thinking, there's no better prayer than that, than to ask God to always keep his purposes and his thoughts in our hearts so that God could work in us and through us to advance the gospel and advance his agenda in our world today. Now, I'm gonna close with a couple of stories. The first story, I think, reveals the heart of a steward rather than the mind of an owner. Um, This came by way of an email said, I'm really excited about what God is doing in our church. When my wife and I attended one of the early meetings, God impressed a number on my heart to give to the campaign, and I thought, there's just no way. And in the booklet, that's, that was like this, that was handed out, there was a chart that showed several ways to give that were out of the ordinary, as well as ways to modify our spending. And in going through that exercise, we've already identified how we can double our original amount, and God's not finished with us yet. God's doing a great work in our church, and we want very much to be a part of what's he, what he's doing. Now, that couple would be right at home in First Chronicles 29 because they're looking for ways to give to the max over and above their regular gifts, and they're doing it joyfully and cheerfully. Now, way back in the first capital campaign we did here when we moved from Woodruff Road up to here. When Karen and I started praying about what God would have us give, I asked her about an amount. Uh, What did she feel like God was saying to her? 
And the figure that she mentioned was exactly the figure that I mentioned that I felt like God was impressing on me. And, and it was more than we had ever given to something like this. Problem was we couldn't figure out where that sum of money would come from. And we felt like we knew what God wanted us to give, but we had two kids in college and all kinds of other things going on. And our regular giving, which we've already always given above 10% to the church and then over and above that to missions and benevolence, um, we were struggling with this. And so we decided that we would give 10% of one year's salary over and above what we were already giving, but we didn't know how we were gonna do it. And we did exactly what that couple did recently, and that is we looked at ways that we might could give that were out of the ordinary, and there are several ways to do that. You can give up something, you can delay something, you can do something to earn more, you can donate something like a gift in kind. And, and in past campaigns, we've received real estate and all, all kinds of and stocks and all kinds of stuff. Or you can do a combination of those things. And, and don't, don't miss out on what God's doing by saying you can't do anything. Now, here's some things that uh, in past capital campaigns that people did. And they're small things, but if you noticed on this pledge card, in order to reach our goal, we need uh, 200 people just pledging $10 a month to reach our goal. So it's not too little, but some people decided to skip a meal out each week as a family. And if you save $20 a week uh, eating out, which would be conservative, that would be over $3,100 in three year period. Some people commit their uh, income tax refund check to the Lord. Uh, some people put off a discretionary purchase, a major purchase. And one, one uh, couple, I know a family that put off purchasing new carpet for three years and gave that money to the campaign. Um, you could make a commitment to drink only water when you go out. And if you did that, one person could save $5 a week or more. And that's a minimum of $780. The point is, it is possible to give something. God's not looking for equal gifts. He's looking for people whose hearts are willing to make some kind of sacrifice to join him in his work. Now, the second story goes back to the why for multiplying our ministry to a new location that I talked about last week. A while back, a lady came up to me after the service and she says, I've been coming to fellowship for a while now and I just have to tell you this story. She says, several years ago, I became a Christian and I knew that would be a problem in my marriage so I didn't really talk much to my husband about it. And he knew I had become a Christian because he saw me reading my Bible all the time and going to church. And most of the churches I attended, I enjoyed. And people talked about the Bible and it seemed to be, and they all seemed to be kind of growing in their faith. But I kept going from church to church to church, looking for a church that I would feel comfortable inviting my husband to attend because I knew he didn't really want to go and I'd probably only get one shot. So each week I'd take my two children who are four and seven and I would take them to these churches and for the most part they would like their Sunday school classes but every time I drove home I would think that was nice but I can't take my husband there. And people kept telling me you should try Fellowship Greenville and she said it was too far and I thought it was too big but I got up one morning I'd run out of places to go. So I got up and I packed up the kids and we visited the church. And she said, my kids loved it. 
And halfway through the service, I realized this is it. This is the place. If I get one shot, this is where I'm gonna bring my husband. And she went home and she waited for just the right time. And she asked her husband to come to church with her. And after some nudging, not nagging, but nudging, he finally agreed. And they got up one Sunday morning, loaded up the kids, and they came to church. Push pause right there. Now let me stop and tell the story and tell you what you know that they didn't know. That same Sunday morning, some of our fit team got up early and they drove here and they got the coffee going and the information desks welcome center set up and the next table, uh, next step table set up and they uh, position, got, got positioned in the parking lot and uh, they, they, the ushers got all the materials that they needed, the greeters for what they needed that morning. They didn't know who was coming. But they were faithful to their posts. And when that couple drove in, they were welcomed with smiles and helpful directions. And that same morning, some teachers got up early and they got here and they made copies of some worksheets and they got the scissors out and the paper out and the glue out and they finished preparing the Bible story to teach that morning. And as parents and kids showed up and they greeted kids and they shook their hands and printed out name tags, they had no idea who was coming. And on Wednesday before that, the band and worship team showed up to meet with Matt and Johnny and they went over the music for Sunday and they had a good rehearsal to make sure the music would be both worshipful and excellent. And that early Sunday morning, the sound and light guys and gals and the tech team and video people were here working, very busy getting everything ready. They didn't know who was coming. And Saturday night, I was home. I was stressed out like I am every Saturday night thinking about my message, thinking this is the most boring sermon known to man. And I'm thinking, I wonder if Corley Plumbing could use another plumber. Not that I know anything about plumbing either. And early in the morning, Rick Aylstock was up unlocking doors and Tim Dallas was setting up things, making sure the AC and the lights were on. Hundreds of people went into action preparing and praying. They didn't know who was coming. And that family drove in the parking lot and they found a place and they opened the door. As soon as they did, they were greeted by some nice smiling faces and someone escorted the dad and mom and the kids to the right classes and introduced them to teachers. And the teachers assured the mom and the dad that those boys would have a good time. And then they grabbed a cup of coffee and the dad and mom walked into the auditorium. It was full, but the ushers and greeters helped them find a place to sit. And then the service began with some upbeat music and a couple of guys telling funny stories up front and people were laughing and the man and his wife looked at each other and laughed. And as they looked around, clearly, they saw people who enjoyed being at church. Music was incredible. Sermon was understandable. The people was, were friendly and everything ended up pretty much on time. And when it was all over, and they got up to leave, the man turned to his wife and said, can we come here next week? (laughs) 
I think I'm going to outdo Jason as the crying pastor. <laughs> Listen, that's why we do what we do here. That's what this is all about. This is why we're asking you to pray and ask God what he'd have you give to create more space for more people like families like that. Because you see, one day when we all come to the end of our lives, like David was coming to the end of his in 1 Chronicles 29, one day when our time is up, imagine what it would be like if we were able to hand off to the next generation a growing church like the one that God graced us with, a church doing the same things we do, but doing more of it more effectively in more places. Back in 2002, a group of people gave generously and sacrificially to move us from Woodruff Road to the building that we're in right now, an auditorium one, the old Brookwood building. In 2015, a group of people gave generously and sacrificially to build auditorium two, this building that you're sitting in and the next gen space. Except some of you have been through both of those campaigns. But the point is, you're sitting in somebody else's sacrifice. You're enjoying, enjoying what somebody else sacrificed for you. Now it's our turn. So I ask you, as a steward of God's grace, the grace that he's lavished on you, will you partner with God in the work that he's doing now? Will you join us in that work and join him in that work? Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Yes, Lord, all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours and you rule over everything from galaxies to governments. Oh God, keep your purposes and your thoughts in the center of our hearts. Always and forever, keep our hearts directed toward you and the work that you are inviting us to do with you. In Jesus' name.